It is still difficult to understand entirely what President Vladimir Putin of Russia thought he was doing when he ordered a full-scale assault on Ukraine last February. It is safe to assume, however, that the current state of affairs is at significant variance with Putin's best-case scenarios of 16 months ago. Not only has Ukraine not folded, it has resisted, with extraordinary courage of its own and the generous support of its allies. Cautious estimates of Russian casualties run into the tens of thousands. Putin himself is wanted for war crimes. But the war, regrettably, is likely a long way from over, even if Ukraine's long-anticipated counter-offensive, which appears to be underway, does punch significant holes in the Russian lines. Ukraine still needs more money and more weapons, and will certainly lose many more of its own people. In this special episode, recorded at the recent Globesec conference in Bratislava, we speak to former senior NATO commanders, among other voices warning that for all Ukraine has accomplished and endured, nothing can be taken for granted. Is there more that Ukraine's allies could and should be doing? What are the risks of assuming that victory is inevitable? And are we being complacent about Russia's nuclear option? This is The Foreign Desk. I think the West right now is afraid of a win. You hear all kinds of conversations about maybe even the leaders of the West restraining this offensive if it got too successful. So the bottom line is there will be a Russia after this war. We don't know what that might look like if they were to quote unquote lose. We have to be intellectually honest, although most Real thinkers see the likelihood of a nuclear response diminishing every day now because of what's happening in the leadership circles of of Russia. But we have to be intellectually honest and say that it could happen. And I believe that is a real fear in the minds of a lot of Western leaders. Putin definitely cannot count on the patience of the Russian people. And those who argue for this perpetual patience and adaptation are simply wrong, you know, if you look back at the history. The truth is that, is yes, because Russia has this history of centuries of oppressive governments, main strategy of the people is to adapt. But at some point, too much becomes too much, and it all erupts. So this is how Russian history works. Like We wait until the very, very last moment, until it's no longer possible to wait, and then everything explodes. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Since Russia attacked Ukraine last February, Ukraine's allies have incrementally, almost nervously, escalated their military assistance. The latest such item is the F-16 fighter and the necessary training of Ukrainian pilots to fly it. Our first guest is someone who knows very well what an F-16 can do. General Philip Breedlove, formerly of the US Air Force and an F-16 pilot himself, served as NATO's Supreme Allied Commander Europe from 2013 to 2016. He spoke to us at this year's Globsec Bratislava Forum. I began by asking General Breedlove about the strengths of the F-16. So, first of all, it may be more than F-16s. As you know, there are other countries that may make offers and in general what we like to talk about is fourth plus generation aircraft not early fourth generation but typically fourth generation aircraft that have been refurbished or had midlife upgrades whatever the f-16 is clearly a great opportunity 
I am biased, having <laughs> flown it for two-thirds of a 39-year career. And it is an incredible airplane. It has been kept very up-to-date. The beauty of the F-16, and frankly, a lot of the former Warsaw Pact Soviet nations, they think first and almost only sometimes about air-to-air -air and air defense. And the F-16 is a magnificent air defense aircraft especially with the upgraded radars that almost all of them are flying with now. All of those that are coming from NATO nations have had their midlife upgrades. These are very, very capable, highly capable in an electronic warfare environment, carry very good missiles, very lethal capability. But the beauty of the F-16 is it's a multi-role aircraft. Once you establish air defense, or if you establish local air superiority over a battlefield, you want your air force to now begin to support the ground troops. And the F-16 is an incredibly accurate air-to-ground weapon system, dropping almost every bomb that NATO can drop. The F-16 has the capability of carrying it. So it's a very versatile, very lethal capability in both air-to-air -air and air-to-ground. How steep is the learning curve to learn to fly the thing, though? If you have a background, as Ukrainian pilots will, on something like a MiG-29, how big a leap is that? It is a big leap, but I think that we need to remember that through the history of this war so far, every time we have underestimated Ukraine's ability to learn and use Western weapons. So... We need to start from the premise that we've gotten it wrong almost 100% of the time so far. So these are very intelligent, very adaptive, very capable people. But the fact of the matter is if you take a young person that has very little fighter experience or maybe a brand new pilot, it's going to take one amount of time, maybe eight months or more. If you take an experienced and current MiG-29 pilot that has actually flown some combat or whatever, four months or more. But the questions that the West are asking, and I don't, I don't mean to point, but <laughs> that some in journalism ask is how long does it take to get qualified in the airplane? As a combatant commander, I'm not interested in pilots qualified in the airplane. I'm interested in combat-ready pilots. There's a difference. Qualification means you have graduated the basic school, and yes, you can fly it, you can shoot it, you know sort of how to make everything work. But it takes another little bit of training to make you truly mission capable in the aircraft. In the American Air Force, we train the basics at airfields like I commanded, Luke Air Force Base. We give people the basic capability to fly, understand, employ the airplane. Then they go back to their units because each unit has a different mission assigned and they get combat ready at that unit. So we need to change the nomenclature of the conversation and talk about how long does it take to get them mission ready or combat ready. I guess 16 months in, we have a clearer idea perhaps of the shape and nature of this conflict than we did at, say, GlobeSec a year ago. You recently said, however, that you think that the West at some level kind of fears a Ukrainian victory. Why do you think that? Absolutely we do. So Mr. Putin's military 
is failing him on the ground. They're beginning to adapt and get a little better, but so far in this war, they have failed to deliver the objectives that he set out to do. But what is succeeding wildly for Mr. Putin is his war of intimidation. Early in this war, Western leaders, to include those in my country, we told the world and we told Mr. Putin over and over again what we're afraid of. We're not going to put boots on the ground. We're not going to have American troops and Western troops fighting in Ukraine. We don't want the war to widen. We will not allow this war to accelerate to nuclear weapons. And so what does Mr. Putin play back to us now on almost a daily basis? Three, four, five times a week, someone highly placed in Mr. Putin's military or defense ministries are talking about nukes. That's going to be nukes. If they give them F-16s, this is going to cause unintended, incredible consequences. Everything that we do engenders a response that either talks about nukes or the war is going to widen or American soldiers are again going to die on the battlefield. And that war of intimidation or in military parlance, deterrence is succeeding wildly for Mr. Putin. I think the West right now is afraid of a win. You hear all kinds of conversations about maybe even the leaders of the West restraining this offensive if it got too successful. What do you think they're frightened of, though? Is it the prospect that a cornered Russia might take precipitate action with nuclear weapons, or is it the prospect of Russia descending into chaos in the event of a defeat and humiliation? I think it's both. I mean, so the bottom line is there will be a Russia after this war. We don't know what that might look like if they were to quote unquote lose. We have to be intellectually honest, although most real thinkers see the likelihood of a nuclear response diminishing every day now because of what's happening in the leadership circles of, of Russia. But we have to be intellectually honest and say that it could happen. And I believe that is a real fear in the uh, minds of a lot of Western leaders. You mentioned earlier that fear that went along from the start of this conflict with escalating past a certain point and all those things that the West said it wouldn't do. But the West also has said at various points things like, uh, we don't really want to send them modern tanks, we don't really want to send them F-16s. And there's been the same dynamic played every time, that eventually we've got there. Wisely or not, do you think NATO, the wider West, has stopped caring what Russia thinks? No, I don't. I think we are continuing a path of what I have described as creeping incrementalism. You know, think about how long it has taken on some of these major weapon systems from no to the weapon system actually arriving on the battlefield. I mean, it has taken six, seven, and eight months for some of these things to actually materialize. And how long has the United States been talking about we're giving them Abrams tanks? How many Abrams tanks are on the battlefield today? Not many. None, <laughs> zero. We do things carefully and slowly, and we sort of float the balloons, and we get the responses. Then we make an announcement, and we sort of celebrate our announcement. And I think that our measures of merit are wrong. We sort of celebrate the decision to do something. What we should be celebrating is when that piece of kit is on the battlefield, 
having effect on the Russian army. And there's a wide variation between those two. Well, to bring it back then, finally, to the piece of kit you know best, if those decisions had been made earlier and the F-16 was actually in the service of the Ukrainian Air Force a lot earlier in this conflict, is it possible to estimate what kind of difference it might have made? Too much there, not enough in the question to define. How many? When did they get there? What weapons have we given them to put on them? Et cetera, et cetera. I mean... If we had started training them years ago, as some suggested, they would have had a much more capable force uh, starting this war. And maybe, let's not criticize the Ukrainian Air Force. The size and the age of the Ukrainian Air Force, it's quite incredible what they've done with it. Amazing, frankly. But if they'd have had a real fourth-plus generation Air Force to start this war, it would have been very different. That was General Philip Breedlove, former NATO Supreme Allied Commander Europe. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. Our next guest is the former British General Sir Richard Sheriff, who served as NATO's Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe from 2011 to 2014. I began by asking Sir Richard about his visit to Kiev last month. On the face of it, arriving in the city by train into the morning rush hour, it's just like arriving in any city, any European city. But you soon pick up the differences. For a start, there aren't many young men on the streets, and the young men that are on the streets are in uniform. You see barbed wire around the parks. There might be children on the, playing on the swings and things, but there's barbed wire blocking different aspects of the parks. Ministry buildings surrounded by sangers, sandbags, soldiers with machine guns and fully tooled up. The lights dim down in ministry corridors because they're conserving energy. Uh, and that, of course, it's not usual in most European cities to be woken up by the hotel reception at two in the morning and being told to get into a bomb shelter. So on the face of it, all pretty much normal, but there are differences. And, of course, the real difference is the energy, dynamism, vigour of the people that you meet and the absolute determination that they realise that if there's any form of negotiated ceasefire, it means the war continues, the massacres continue, the occupation continues, the deportation of children and the mass rape continues. And so they, are, they know that either they fight to the end, and the end means victory, or they don't survive. It's as simple as that. On the subject of that victory, though, what's been your view of the extraordinarily advanced messaging? Are you surprised by it, or is this just an adaptation to the realities of the modern media environment where it's kind of assumed that everybody knows everything's coming anyway? I think it's very much the latter. I think the slight nuance that I would add, actually it's not a nuance, it's a really important point, I think, which is that, and I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think... We shouldn't think of, in terms of one count and you're out, one decisive counteroffensive and the Russians reel back in chaos and Ukraine has achieved everything it wants to achieve by the end of this summer or by the end of this year. I think we need to be thinking in terms of a series of hammer blow offensives, each of which either sequentially or concurrently or both put together as a campaign. This is operational level campaign design each of which is going to require training, logistics, and all the support the West pours in. And I think, you know, 
an analogy of something like the Allied campaign in Italy in 1943 to 5 could not be far wrong. I think this could take a couple of years. You don't think there's, and I know it's the fairy tale ending, a complete unravelling of morale or discipline in the Russian lines and the Russian army melting away much as it did in 1917, for example? Do you know what? I wouldn't rule anything out, but you can't count on it. And it's been interesting. There's been a couple of comments lately by Prigozhin talking about 1917 and revolution, by Gherkin talking about a coup. The cracks are beginning to appear, but I think again and again in, you know, you just look at military history, never underestimate the Russians. Never underestimate that extraordinary capacity for resilience and to be able to dig deep. Now, this isn't the great patriotic war. You know, it's one thing if your motherland is attacked and invaded. This isn't. This is young Mobix being sent off to die in a fruitless war. So never underestimate it, but don't count on it. Is there a concern, as far as you were able to tell, on the other side of it? Because what we're not hearing a great deal about, and it's understandable that we're not, is details of Ukrainian casualties, which must be considerable by now, indeed horrific by now. And it's a big country and everything, but is there a danger that if what Russia has decided is that we can soak up more than they can, that Russia's numbers tell eventually? Yes, I'm sure Ukrainian casualties are very high. And there's not a family in Ukraine that hasn't had to come to terms with loss and grief. But I go back to the point I made earlier. Ukrainians know that if they accept some sort of ceasefire, if they throw in the towel, which is material of the same thing, they won't survive as a country. So they'll fight to the end. And if this is a game of out-suffering the West, out-suffering Ukraine, which Putin has stated that that's mm. what... Russian strategy is, I think Ukraine will outsuffer Russia any day. The difference then will come down to, well, part of the difference will come down to equipment. And you've been an advocate from the very often, indeed much beforehand, about equipping Ukraine more seriously than it has been equipped. Where they are now, what do they need most urgently? I mean, I realise the answer is probably more of everything, but among that, what do they need most? Air defence and ammunition, right up there at the top. I mean, we're finally getting there over F-16s, but that's taken far too long. And again, this has been self-deterrence and this has been dithering and, oh, it's going to take a Ukrainian pilot two years to train a Ukrainian. Well, come on, this is warfare. And these are clever guys and they can do it in a much... You know, I'm not an Air Force man, but, you know, that's what the guys who do know about it say. So we're getting there. But just imagine if that tap had been turned on in February last year, or actually if that tap had been turned on as it should have been in 2014. A, there wouldn't have been a war, but now if Ukraine had had the kit that they really have been crying out for from the very start, they'd have been been in a different place. The second one is ammunition, because you cannot mount the sort of offensive operations Ukrainians need to mount and suppress the Russian defences without vast quantities of of ammunition. We're talking about 300,000 shells for a three, four week period, if not more. And so it's ammunition. And of course, that's a real challenge because Ukrainian partner stocks are really dry. So this comes back to the point that, again, we've discussed many times, that business of changing the mindset among Ukraine partners that recognizes that this is not Ukraine's war, it's our war. This is not a war just against Ukraine. Yes, Ukraine's engaged physically, but it's a war against the West. It's a war against Ukraine becoming part of the West. And I don't think we've seen that mindset shift at all yet that recognises that industry needs to be tooled up 
to churn out, stop making bicycles, start making shells. The sort of things that happened in our countries in the Second World War. We should talk, of course, about the semi-complete enlargement of the organisation for which you were Deputy Supreme Allied Commander. Are you confident that Sweden will get there eventually? And if it does, how much safer do you think that makes Europe? Oh, Sweden joining NATO makes the alliance infinitely stronger. I mean, Finland's really important, and the same is true. You know, it seals off the Baltic. The Baltic becomes a NATO lake, and it's going to make it very difficult for Russia to get up to any mischief there. More widely, of course, it's not just the Baltic region that is safer. It's the alliance as a whole, and that includes Turkey, Hungary, nations which have been, shall we say, blocking and making it difficult for Sweden to come in. But I am certain that Turkish security, Hungarian security, will be infinitely stronger with Sweden in the alliance. That was General Sir Richard Shiroff, NATO's former Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe, speaking to us at the Globesec Bratislava Forum. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Ukraine's astonishing defiance of Russia's onslaught has encouraged the ambition of a complete victory, not merely halting Russia's advance, but recapturing what Russia has taken since it first invaded Ukraine in 2014, the eastern territories of the Donbass and Crimea. But what if that can't quite be done? Earlier, I spoke to Professor Rob Deweig, founder of the Hague Centre at Leiden University. Most experts simply do not see an outright victory for Ukraine right now, unfortunately. I wish it could happen tomorrow. The point is that we do not define success. What is it? There is no definition about success, so that's a problem. The Ukrainians have a definition of success. The Ukrainians have a definition, but I always ask the question, how? How are we going to do that? That's also the question I raised in the Netherlands within the ministries I'm working for. And we produce papers now to discuss undesired outcomes. Everybody should do so, because this is about planning. There is one day we should move from providing arms, supplying weaponry, to deterrence. How are we going to do that? What are we going to do if there is a ceasefire? Do we then move forward with NATO membership or uh, other arrangements leading to, how to put it, security guarantees? How Mm. are we going to do that? These are the, the fundamental questions and everybody knows it and that's the elephant in the room. It's a kind of groupthink, and I understand it. Mm. So I'm not going to blame anyone for this, because I'm not going to raise the question, the awkward questions too. <laughs> but we have to think about it. If we don't do it, we might end up in a major war in, in Europe. That was Professor Rob Deweig of Leiden University. And while nobody, Ukraine least of all, enjoys the idea that an end to this war is a distant prospect, our next and final guest has long argued that the conflict will likely be with us for several years. Vladimir Milov is a Russian opposition politician who formerly served as the Deputy Minister of Energy of Russia in 2002. He is now an economic advisor to the imprisoned Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. I began by asking Vladimir whether he is surprised, 16 months on, that Russia has made such minimal progress in its invasion of Ukraine. No, not at all. I was actually one of the few experts who predicted before the war that if Putin invades... 
for which reason I didn't believe that he would, the Russian army would perform really poorly. Because in the previous years, Putin has managed to create a facade in Crimea, in Donbass, in Syria, and trying to convince everyone that we have created some kind of modern army which is capable of achieving things. I really knew that behind the facade it is not. So it was not surprising to me. However, I would say we have a kind of a stalemate at the moment where neither side is capable of decisively winning. Obviously, Ukraine has the advantage because of morale of troops, because they are liberating their territories and Putin's army have no idea what they're doing there, and also because of all these supplies of Western weapons. But it's going to be difficult to liberate all that Putin has occupied. And again, in the beginning of the conflict, I was comparing this to, you know, Iran-Iraq war of 1980s, which looks still to me like a most plausible scenario with neither side capable of decisively winning. Putin is interested in prolonging this conflict, making this a war of attrition to exhaust Ukraine, exhaust the West. So I think we're at least into a few more years of that thing. Yeah, that's a pretty grim portent because that went on for the thick end of a decade, Iran versus Iraq. Do you think that could be the case here? Yes, and I think it's best if we drop the rosy glasses, if we look forward into the protracted nature of this conflict with open eyes, and we include this as a basic assumption. Because what I see is that everybody gets nervous when people think that it could last more than one or two years for much longer. And that's exactly what Putin wants you to be. He wants you to be nervous because people in the West, many think that they don't have enough resources, enough patience. They want this to be over soon anyhow. This is exactly what Putin wants. When you begin looking at your watch, it gives him advantage. So it's best for the free world to prepare for a protracted conflict and winning in a protracted conflict. Can Putin count on the infinite patience of the Russian people, though? I mean, there has been a lot of stuff thrown around about you know, this very stereotypical idea of the Russian people as somehow uniquely equipped to withstand uh, suffering which would be intolerable, inconceivable to the rest of us. But the Russians are still a people that were sold on the idea of a, a lightning-quick victory over Ukraine, and it must be apparent, despite the propaganda, that that has not happened. Putin definitely cannot count on the patience of of the Russian people. And those who argue for this perpetual patience and adaptation are simply wrong. You know, if you look back at the history, the truth is that, is yes, because Russia has this history of centuries of oppressive governments, main strategy of the people is to adapt. But at some point, too much becomes too much, and it all erupts. So this is how Russian history works. Like We wait until the very, very last moment, until it's no longer possible to wait, and then everything explodes. So some bangs are louder than the others, but usually this is how it goes. So we are heading towards this big bang. We don't know when and how it will happen, but the trends are very clear. Economy, living standards, public opinion, and yes, you're right, the general perception that Many people hoped that this thing will be over soon, just as Putin's television promised, like Kiev in three days and that's it, you know, however miserable it is. But nobody's really prepared for a lengthy conflict. Russian society is even less prepared than the West. If you really look at qualitative polling and what people actually say about what's going on, this thing that, oh, it's lasting too long, there's no end in sight, and why have we gotten into it in the first place, that will top the list of responses. 
Is there any way at all to have an idea of what the internal dynamics within the Kremlin are? It, it is extraordinary in this transparent, connected world in which we now live that when we look at Russia, it sometimes feels like we're back in the 1980s looking at pictures of the May Day parade to try and see who's sitting three seats closer to the Secretary General than they were this time last year. Does anybody have an understanding of what the dynamics are, where the potential disagreements with Putin, the potential rivals to Putin are? Here's one thing which is often misunderstood by many outside commentators. You compare this to Soviet times and Secretary General. But back then there was much more equality and meritocracy. So Soviet Politburo was a gathering of more or less equals. Just remember the declassified minutes about their discussion of whether to invade Afghanistan. So they argued. This was the gathering of people of uh, comparable weight. I know that for many in the West, it's hard to believe what kind of an absolutist system we have. So merely questioning what Putin is doing is a crime within that system, which means a lot really depends on what he thinks. And he's extremely stubborn. He's not known for recognizing his mistakes. I mean, he's been in power for nearly a quarter of a century. You can trace that. So that is a problem. The lack of any significant influence of anybody inside the Kremlin. And also, there is no Politburo. The system is very compartmentalized. Putin talks bilaterally to all of them. So, you know, there was one collective gathering which you saw on television in February 2022, and they all really looked like a scared sheep, all right, in front of a wolf. So I think it's the last thing that we should count upon some dynamics within the Kremlin. I think the public discontent will come first. Usually, this is how it happened. I remember it very well in the 1980s with the Soviet Union. Public discontent came first. Then the elites started shaking. So elites are the last thing I would put my hope into. Do you put any hope at all then in the Russian diaspora, especially the new Russian diaspora, which has been created in the last 16 months as hundreds of thousands of people have left the country to avoid getting caught up in this? Because there has been an amount of criticism of that diaspora, which I'm sure you've heard that, well, you're out of Russia now, you're safe, you're in Turkey, you're in Georgia, you're in Lithuania, you could organise, you could protest, you could make it clear that not all Russians support this war, and yet that diaspora does seem to be pretty quiet. First, I wonder if you heard about the recent reports of poisonings of activists in Europe, which is being investigated by FBI and European authorities, so it's pretty serious as far as I can see. So one thing, we're definitely not safe, and also we're working all the time, we're not chilling here. Important thing, in changing Russian public opinion, turning it against Putin and against the war, our role is crucial. Because our broadcasting through social media, through YouTube, onto the Russian audience is very significant. The average monthly audience of unique viewers inside Russia is, I would say, between 30 35 million if you combine all the Russian independent political and media outlets. Just Navalny channels alone, it's about 15 million unique viewers per month in Russia. That's a lot. It is much more than the, you know, Voice of America or BBC have reached inside the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And that is considered to be a successful broadcasting project. Our influence is much bigger now. We're really focused on that. We're trying to change public opinion at home. And if you look at the trends, it is working. We'd love it to work much faster, but it is what it is. So it bears certain fruit. And finally, just on a personal note, obviously in the world beyond Russia, Russia has become the subject of a great deal of criticism for its behavior in Ukraine, all entirely justified. Is it difficult to keep 
working and keep doing what you're doing without taking that personally and internalising it. Everybody, I think, likes to think well of their country and likes to think that their country is a good place that does good things. And even when your country is doing bad things, it's still pretty hard to hear it from outsiders, isn't it? Sometimes it gets really painful, and a lot of this criticism is not really justified and not based on actual facts and knowledge about what is happening inside Russia. I mean, just one criteria which says it all. We speak about collective Russian responsibility and all Russians being perpetual imperialists, but for 15 months of the war, Putin is desperately trying to recruit volunteers for the war, offering them a very generous pay, like 10 times bigger than the median salary in most regions. No one shows up. No one shows up. Defense Minister Shaigu said 20,000 since the beginning of the war. 20,000 across all of Russia have turned up as volunteers. That's next to nothing meaning that there is absolutely no drive among the Russians to actually join Putin's war. Some of this criticism is understood, but I mean, listen, we're grown-ups. We need to work beyond that. And I also remember when I was growing up as a kid in the Soviet Union, we had some ethnic German children in our schools, and boy, Soviet kids were absolutely ruthless, you know. Auschwitz, Babi Yar, it was all their fault. And they were very gentle, subtle, small kids, right? So we understand how this works. We need to get beyond that and we need to look into the future. So sometimes it's painful, but we prefer really not to concentrate on that. That was the Russian opposition politician Vladimir Milov speaking to us at the Globsec Bratislava Forum. And that is it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. This week's edition of The Foreign Desk and The Foreign Desk Explainer was produced and edited by Emma Searle, Christy O'Grady, David Stevens, and Mariella Bevan. Thanks also to Roger Hilton, Olivia Strapakova and all the team at Globesec. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.